Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to hear in this episode is a live recording of a session that took place at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 in January at the Digi Palace. Here it is. that I wake up with Adnan, uh, with Adnan every morning. And it's like, it has to do, I think, with the time difference, uh, that when I wake up, no, I don't know about you, but do you take up your phone? Is that the first thing you do? Like, check the watch, and then there's, I have him as a favorite, and he always comes up first, every day, wakes me up, and uh, very often what happens is I'm, I'm again engaged reading about, you know, uh, all the things that he'd found out throughout the day. And very often I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm too late to wake up my children because this is such an engaging theme. And I have to say that your whole book has been a wake-up call for me. But many of the things that you describe in this book are things that I've felt. I've kind of had, you know, some kind of intuition that this is happening, but I haven't had the words for it uh, when it comes to changing the world. Uh, the way the news speak, how uh, the global elite uh, are uh, keeping the world uh, or pretending to change the world to keep it uh, in their benefits. So, um, I would like to uh, 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 start by asking, like, how did this... I mean, you were somehow... You could have been one of them. You were an insider, an aspiring insider into a very elite business world. Uh, why... Uh, what made you leave that crowd? Um. Well, thank you all for being here. I haven't, as Asna was saying, I haven't been here in some years, and it's really exciting to be back. Um, given that this is a book about the depravity of billionaires and the crisis of democracy, I hope you may find it relevant. Um, you know, for me, and I want to say at the outset, this is a book mostly about what's happening in the United States, where I live, and... I think there are many things about it that are true of many other places, and I leave you to figure that out for yourselves, wherever you come from. Um, but for me, this originated in making a, a kind of double-barreled observation about the United States and to some extent the world, which is that we live in this time, and this is true in India also, we live in this time of tremendous, extraordinary innovation and of stories about all the amazing new possibilities of the new world. And we live in a time of extraordinary prosperity. And we live in a time in which these very, very wealthy people who have won the most from the new world we live in, who have helped invent that new world, who have profited handsomely from that new world, are constantly telling us that they are changing the world. They are building the nation. They are giving back. They are making a difference. And you see this in different forms. You see this through business leaders, um, whether it's Mukesh Ambani in India or Mark Zuckerberg in the United States, 
who say, you know, they're, they're kind of building the nation through their intrinsic business activities. You see it, uh, whether it's Azim Premji or Jeff Bezos, people talking about their philanthropy. They're going to make lots of money, but then they're going to give back and change the world. And you see it in the new forms of social enterprise, where you know, a lot of young people drawn to this idea of creating a business, cupcake company that's going to give back, or socks. If you buy these socks, Africa will forever be saved by the socks. Um, tote bags, anything basically involving Bono. Um, and, and you look at all these activities, impact, investing, the list goes on and on, and you know all of these in India as well as, as, well as the United States. And all these people giving back, and all these people creating these businesses. And that set of reality sits uncomfortably next to another stubborn sense of reality, which is that this also happens to be in my country, and maybe you agree in yours, a moment of profound crisis for democracy in which the very same class of wealthy people and beneficiaries of this age, in many cases, the actual same people, have become monopolists on progress itself, have become hoarders of the future, of the fruits of the future, that the very same people who talk such a great game about giving back, about creating community, about changing the world, about making a difference, about this hospital they do, about that homeless program they do, these same people don't pay people enough, don't pay their damn taxes, lobby for public policies that benefit them privately at the expense of virtually everybody else. And so I became curious about the relationship between fact number one, rich people making a difference or talking about making a difference, and fact number two, which is rich people making a killing in a way that is strangulating democracy. And I think the conventional wisdom about fact number one and fact number two, which is that, you know, at least these rich people are trying something. At least these billionaires are doing something. There's a kind of at least argument. Yes, it's not perfect. Yes, the, the world they're building is, is tough on anybody who makes the mistake of being a regular person, but they're at least they're trying. And I became curious about, in, in some ways, the at least argument is like, if only we had more Mark Zuckerbergs, and those Mark Zuckerbergs had more money, and they were giving more of it away, then maybe we could solve these problems we have. And I became curious about a different possibility which is maybe we have these problems because these billionaires do just enough good, these companies do just enough good, ExxonMobil has a remarkable renewables program, they do just enough good to preserve fundamentally a system that does harm on a much bigger scale. And so I reported it out. I have a lot of opinions, but I'm a reporter, so I try to have opinions at the end of the reporting. And I spent a few years talking to people, interviewing people, going behind the scenes, trying to understand how these billionaires and foundation leaders and CEOs think. And what I found was that the very wealthiest people on earth have tended to promote a particular idea of how you get a good society, which is that you leave wealthy people alone to make as much money as they can make in whatever which way they need to make it, cutting every social corner they can possibly cut, 
not paying those taxes, not paying those workers, lobbying for that bottle service, private public policy that's only good for them. And then, in a very flamboyant way with a lot of publicists, giving back a little. And that this model has defrauded democracy, and this model of making a difference is the wingman of making a killing for those people. This model of giving back is the wingman of taking too much for those people. This model of changing the world is the wingman of keeping things the same for those people. And, and that this model fundamentally of them doing good is the wingman of them continuing to have the right to do harm to our societies, our economies, our politics, and our planet. Um, and so I'm happy to be here talking to you about this and very happy to be in conversation with Asta. Uh, one of the core elements of this uh, new way of uh, trying to run the world is bypassing government, uh, and uh, which is under democratic in the sense that you have, in your book, you have CEOs who uh, are talking about people as, not their people, but these people, who are actual people with actual opinions and actually do vote, or a queen who's also uh, uh, annoyed by the fact that politicians have to think of elections and, and voters. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, uh, to what extent is this uh, destroying our democracy? Uh, uh, do people, I mean, they would say, that. Do, where, do, where, where are people's voice here? How, what can people do uh, in this uh, new system? You know, the, the issue you raise is very important because a lot of what I write about are things that are ideas that, seems, that are all around us that seem seductive and seem good. And I'm trying to make you realize that they're not as good as they seem. And one of these ideas is this very uh, classy sounding denigration of government that does not sound like the denigration of government. So it sounds like this, and you tell me if you've heard this. You know. This climate crisis is terrible, but governments aren't acting, so the private sector has to take the lead. You heard that argument? Or you hear, you know, yes, it would be much better if India had better infrastructure, the United States had better infrastructure, but the government's not doing it, so, you know, public-private partnerships in which billionaires decide which ones they fund and which ones they don't, we're going to do that instead. There's this sort of, of course we love government, but it's just, it's not showing up so let us do it, and let's solve the world through ice cream companies that donate a little bit to the, for the poor, whatever. And I want to make the case to you that this is the old trickle-down economics, the old anti-government ideology that we all know from our societies with whipped cream and a cherry on top. It's the same thing dressed up. And what happened was, Starting in the late 70s, 1980s, you had this ascendancy of the neoliberal idea, which is that everything can be solved by putting things in the hands of business people. Um, everything can be solved by unshackling commerce. And that idea was a frontal war on the idea of government. Now, there's some places where maybe there was too much government, right? Maybe you might feel that about India relative to other places where that same conversation happened. But that revolution has gone so far, it has invalidated the very idea of government. And what started to happen was you started to have all these social problems multiplying 
and government being less funded, less capable of solving them. That starts to make people angry. So what did these folks do? They realized that, and they started coming forward with a second argument. Instead of saying government's the enemy, government's always bad, we have to get rid of government, they start with this second thing of, yes, in an ideal world, government would be here, but it's not, so we're going to step in. And what this complete story misses is that the very people regretting, lamenting the absence of government are the reason government doesn't have resources and doesn't have capacity. So first, they fight to defund government, defang government, make government incapable by pulling resources, pulling authority, and then they publicly lament the situation they cause, which is like when I lament eating the french fries that I ordered. It's hard to lament something that you ordered and ate. But that's what they do. And so this anti-government ideology in our time, we have to recognize it because it takes place in this very different form. It doesn't show up in the Reagan-Thatcher government is terrible form. It takes the place, it, it, it takes this kind of new avatar of, you know, I, we, we just have to do the best we can. At least we're doing something. At least the bank that helped make 10 million people homeless in the financial crisis is helping 46 people now. And we are fools if we think 46 and 10 million are the same number of people. Uh, the rise of inequality. Uh, if you look in your book, you write about, you know, the amount of billionaires you need to, you know, to, to be equal to one half of the world is deep. Decreasing now, I think it's eight billionaires on the rest half of the world. Uh, you have Bill Gates, who, after saying some years ago that he would give away all his money, his uh, fortune has doubled. There's something in the system that just it's you know it goes in their favor in the U.S. Uh, and other countries. Uh, and you write about in your book that instead of, uh, you know, wishing for hopeful solutions as they want us to do, like with inspiration, you know, inspir inspirational thought leaders and, and that kind of people, we need a systemic change. Uh, and that systemic change, uh, do you see, it, is it, possible? Is there somehow, you also write about the anger on the streets, is there, is that systemic change possible to achieve? I mean, I think first of all, you have to start with the question, which is a question that was not acceptable to ask until very recently. You tell me what the conversation is here. I will tell you, in the United States, this was not an acceptable question until recently, which is, should we even have billionaires? Is this a thing we should have? We forget that it's a choice. Your, your tax policy that you have determines the shape of the income distribution. And in the United States, which celebrates wealth so much, this was an unacceptable question, but it's become an acceptable question. And there's a guy who works for Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of the great stars of this conversation, Dan Riffles, her staffer, and his Twitter name is, every billionaire is a policy failure. Which is not saying every billionaire is a bad person. I'm saying every billionaire is a policy failure. Every time we let a billionaire slip up through the cracks, upward through the cracks, it is a measure of our policies to have failed because it's a question of priority. In this country, what choices are we making to decide we should first allow some people 
to have billions and billions of dollars in fortunes before we decide everybody has had food tonight? What choice is that? We, we forget that this is our choice. We forget that if you had a wealth tax, if you had certain labor protections, if you had a certain wage, you'd have a different distribution. And so I have been trying to just open the Overton window of that conversation of saying, we should think about whether we want billionaires. Maybe the thing to do with billionaires is to just not have them, right? Um, and, and they would still be okay. They would still be here, right? They would still eat in better restaurants than you. They would just maybe have less money. And once we begin to have that conversation, then you actually start asking. And I'll give you the example of the United States. I'm sure this is true here with different numbers. You look at the Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders wealth tax proposals. What's remarkable about these numbers is both of them have chosen to confine their wealth taxes to a very small number of people. 100,000 families, something in that order of magnitude, in a country of 300 million people. They very deliberately, politically kept it to a small number of people where you're pretty sure that's not you. And then you look at what we could fund in the United States, which is a very high cost country compared to this country. What we could fund in the United States for everybody through a tax that would literally only affect 100,000 families, would basically affect nobody except very few people. We could eliminate everybody's student debt, fund universal childcare for all children, free college at all public colleges and universities, and other stuff. Now, just, just it, wh whether you not think this tax and these policies, are, just think about what that is. Think about how much money is under 100,000 people's mattresses that you could fund all of that stuff for 300 million people by taking somewhere between 2 and 10% a year of the richest fortunes on earth when those fortunes last year, the 500 richest people on earth last year, their wealth grew at 25% per annum. $1.2 trillion. In, so under the most aggressive wealth tax proposal in the United States, which I think is at either 8 or 10%, Bernie Sanders, the wealthiest people in America would have had their wealth increase at 15% last year instead of 25 and they call this demonization of the rich, vilification, a war. If that is a war, draft me. You're drafted. Um, you were sitting in this chair uh, in, in Austin, South by Southwest, and you were interviewing Elizabeth Warren. I was there in the audience. Uh, and I remember her answer to the same question you asked her about, do we need billionaires? And she answered, uh, when everyone has health care, when everyone has, uh, you know, free education, when, you know, everyone is covered, you know, it's okay uh, with having billionaires then. And then you followed up, okay, so a Norwegian billionaire is, is okay. She's fine with Norwegian billionaires. That's what, yeah. And I'm just, I just have to say a little, you know, mm, this, what you're talking about, is happening in, you know, the crib of social democracy and socialism, which is Scandinavia. Like, we just, uh, that same thing that we need money, business money, and now, like, I grew up uh, in a society where you are citizens and not consumers. But now we are building a new national gallery. And 
they need the, the government, we have a right-wing government, they need private money. And there's this billionaire in Norway. He's made his fortune on, uh, you know, shady business in oil, in fisheries and so on. And he doesn't live in Norway because he doesn't want to pay taxes. So he lives... He sounds in, like a great, yeah, great guy. He lives in Cyprus. So he doesn't pay anything in taxes. But he'd like to, through his daughter, donate some money to the National Gallery if his name, Fredriksen, is put on the hall where he doesn't even donate the art. He rents it out or, or loans it out. And of course, it will all increase after it's been in the National Gallery. And on every single picture, it's so uh, supposed to stand in the memory of his wife who died of cancer. And that hall. And for me, personally, it just, it hurts me. Like, you know, the fact that we, growing up in this society, being citizens, and suddenly, every time I go to the National Gallery, I'm reminding of that tax invader. He, he doesn't, you know, he's fleeing tax. So uh, I'm just wondering about this, uh, the, how we relate to each other. We've been talking uh, earlier about the corrosion of society. Thatcher saying there's no such thing as society, just individual men and women. Um, how does this, where does this lead us? Um, the, the fact that, you know, citizens as having a right to healthcare or having a right to not being reminded of some uh, person, uh, some rich person who don't even pay, pay taxes when you go to a national gallery. We're becoming like United States, even in Europe. So, so can you say something about that fabric of society, that corrosion, like people uh, be having rights, uh, not having to be thankful for charity, uh, whether it's art or you know education or Taco Bell Foundation, you know it's. I think we sometimes, those of us who are lucky enough to live in democracies, whether healthy ones or ones that are, you know, coughing very badly, um, is that we forget what democracy really means in a deeper sense. It's not just a procedure. It's not just a thing we do every four or five years and get a stain on our fingernail and then it's you know, people governing us that we grumble about. Um, it's actually a way of life that has to do with the idea, the radical idea in history, the idea that's been true only believed for a very small fraction of our history as human beings, which is that we can take care of each other. And that actually we can take care of each other through choices, through rational choices, through shared decision-making, better than the smartest person in the land can take care of us without our permission better than the nicest person in the land can take care of us without our permission. This is a very radical and beautiful idea. And, you know, this country has bet very deeply on that idea in a region where a lot of other countries did not bet so deeply on that idea and have had a lot more problems. The United States, for all its flaws, for all its original sins, has bet very, very deeply on that idea. And I think now we're living in this moment in which that idea not just the procedure, but the idea that we can make choices to take care of each other democratically is under threat in a few different ways. It's under threat from authoritarian leaders, from fundamentalists, but it's also, as you say, under threat from people who seem much kinder and gentler than that, people who just want to buy art for the museum. What's wrong with those people? And the guy you describe, I don't know him, and I hope I never meet him, but the guy who 
is a tax evader, is living in Cyprus, doesn't, is not even part of his country, but who wants to launder his reputation in Norway, wants to be seen by the kind of people who go to museums in Norway as a good guy, as a hero, and who, we must remember, is enabled in doing this by whoever in Norway is taking that money, by whichever public institutions are allowing that to be possible. And this is another very important point. This group of billionaires, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or anybody else in India or elsewhere, is only able to do this because we let them. Okay? I'll speak of Mark Zuckerberg, someone I write about in the book. Mark Zuckerberg has not only been not satisfied to spread polarization and misinformation um, and just make everybody waste their time, he thought it would be much better to also sabotage democracy, right? He thought it would be better for a few extra percentage points of growth to allow American democracy to be hacked by a Russian intelligence operation and have no one do anything about it. This was his choice. And this choice is only possible because for a very long time until very recently, the press in America, and maybe you would say this about some of your billionaires here, has lionized Mark Zuckerberg, has made him a hero, a swaggering national leader, a thought leader, a person who apparently has thoughts. And under the cover, under the kind of moral glow conferred by that lionizing that we all participate in by writing about him that way in the press, by reading those things, by sort of believing them. He was able to gut punch one of the most powerful democracies on earth, one guy who just didn't want his company to be regulated or investigated, who feared maybe 5% slower growth. And we're all able to be taken in by that. So we, part of the the effort to restore meaningful democracy that I'm calling for is not just fighting the big leaders who are in the news every day, which is important, but it is also making sure that we are resisting the petty tyranny of all these people who are sabotaging the idea of us governing ourselves for a few extra points of return on investment and who are doing that in all the ways you say, not paying taxes, laundering their reputations. We have an opioid crisis in America that was, to a substantial degree, pushed by one family. One family. Just making money on opioids. And what did they have to do? They made billions. And what did they have to do to buy off the entire United States of America? Make several million dollars in art museum donations. That's it. That's it. And what did that mean until about a year or two ago? No one knew their name in connection with the opioid crisis that has killed genocide-level numbers of people in the United States. A few hundred thousand people have been killed by these drugs that they have been shown, this family, to know was going to do that. But all the journalists and people like you go to literature festivals, influential people, people with platforms and the ability to get things out there, who live in cities, were visiting museums across the United States and around the world that had this family Sackler's name on the galleries. And so all the influential people in America only knew them for the arts, not the opioids. 
and the racket was allowed to go on. If we wake up, if we actually stand up for ourselves, there's no telling what we can achieve together. But we have to stop believing that the people most responsible for the problems of the modern world are the solution to the problems they are still causing backstage. Uh, well, to, uh, to pick up on that, standing together, uh, there are today uh, several movements, and, and you're a journalist, and, and suddenly, I don't know if you feel that way, whether you're part of a movement, started a movement, or, or, uh, or part of it. But you have, uh, across Europe, you have here, uh, people in the streets. Uh, and you have some, uh, you know, being in the movement, like whether it's Occupy Wall Street, whether it's now the campaign for, uh, like, more socialist or social democratic uh, president in America. Uh, but you also have the rise of populism, both on the right and on the left. Uh, and how to... Um, make this into a functional movement? Like, in what way do you suggest that people stand together? Is it through, you know, political campaigns? Is it through protests? Is it smaller scale, bigger scale? Um, There's two kinds of populism out there right now. One kind of populism, one, one meaning of the word, refers to whose votes you want. The other refers to who you would be fighting for if you won. Donald Trump is not a populist. He may call himself a populist, but I don't judge him by whose votes he wants. I judge him by who he's helping and who he's screwing. And Donald Trump is very clearly an oligarch working for oligarchs, funded by oligarchs, some of them American. And I'm not going to call him a populist just because he thinks he is. You have, on the other hand, real popular movements. I think you see in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren those kind of movements, and you have others around the world, in which it's a, the populism of actually trying to make things work for you know, people, which is the actual root of the word. And what is exciting about these movements, regardless of where you are in these issues, is, to be honest, these are not anti-capitalist movements. I mean, Bernie Sanders who's the most out there in the United States, you'd say. Bernie Sanders wouldn't nationalize a single company, right? Like, we're not even really talking about the kind of socialism that was practiced in India a generation ago. We are talking about populist movements that are simply trying to restore capitalism and business and the money power and the very rich to being a group in the society among other groups that also have power and also have a say in the ruling of the country. So we need to actually dismiss the notion. I actually, whatever Bernie Sanders calls himself, this is not socialism in any meaningful, in, in the sense that most people understand it. And I think one of the reasons a lot of young people are drawn to this is they're actually not caught up in 20th century psychodramas of what socialism means. They're actually just looking at the fact, which is a 2 to 10% wealth tax that would actually allow people to go to college is not really the Soviet Union. It's just common sense and fairness, right? Um, and so, you know, I have spent the most time in terms of the presidential race with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, interviewed both of them, um, Warren on stage, Bernie for a, for a Time magazine piece. 
And I, you know, for, for the Bernie piece, I spent nine days on the road with Bernie Sanders, which is a very long amount of time to spend with someone like Bernie Sanders. Um, I think I got 20 minutes of interviews and two hellos in the nine days of traveling with him at close quarters. But, what's, but I went to all these events with, with his campaign, his rallies, Iowa, Ohio, Nevada, Pennsylvania, all these places that in America are gonna decide the election because of a very weird system we have. And I would go into these rallies and I would see, look, we all stereotype people based on appearance even though we're not supposed to. So I would see these people who looked like Trump voters, like 55-year-old, if you had to statistically make it up, 55-year-old white guys wearing camouflage, always a good sign in America when someone has recently cut, one guy actually had blood on the camouflage. Like he had, he had shot a deer and then like driven to the political rally with no time to wash his pants. Pretty good sign of a Trump voter. Um, he may have been armed at that moment. Um, not unlawful in many of these places. And I would go up to them and I'd say, you know, are you, are you a socialist? Like what brings you out to see Bernie Sanders? And these guys say, I'm not a socialist, I hate socialism. Okay, like, but you see the guy who you're here to, to meet. I was like, oh, I love Bernie. I don't care he's a socialist, he's fighting for me. He's fighting for people like me. There is something happening out there where I think people are realizing that a lot of the old categories are not real. And there is a need for new thinking on some of these issues that is somewhere in between markets must be abolished and markets are the only thing that work, right? And it's interesting, when I'm in these conversations in the US, people often throw India and China at me. Maybe they don't see me. Um, maybe it's like a radio interview or something. And they're like, you know, but there's India. And uh, India just, you know, opened it up to markets. It was doing the socialism thing before then just switch to capitalism, and now it's much better. You think, first of all, it's a little more complicated story than that. Second of all, I wrote a book about some of that period, and I have thoughts about that. And the most important thing, as you all know, is that's not what happened in India. Many things, you know, I, I often say to people, around the same time India had opened to markets, it began the largest affirmative action program in the history of humankind. Government action and markets, right? Which of those helps explain the story. Part of what I'm trying to advocate for is the idea of going back to a sensible understanding that we have had at many different times, that markets and capitalism and active government and an active education sector and civil society that's vigorous, all of these things working, these different humors in a society working together, none dominating the other to the point of obliteration is the definition of a healthy society. And, and, and to suggest this is to not advocate for Venezuela. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepper Bites is a Lonchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Lay Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Lakshdatta, and thank you for listening.